0: Genesis chapter 4, we have the divinely inspired account of the beginning of what's sometimes referred to as the ungodly line, the line of Cain, a line characterized by rebellion against God. And of course, you remember how that line started with Cain's murder of his brother, Abel. When God pronounced a curse on Cain, of course, uh, Cain, in the the tendency of all the guilty, said, well, my punishment's more than I can bear. Guilty always think their punishment's more than they can bear. He said that if uh, anyone finds me, you having cursed me, they will kill me. Sort of ironic complaint considering he'd murdered his brother. But the Lord said, no, that's not going to happen. I'll put my mark on you. I will set you apart. I will make sure that that doesn't happen. My vengeance is what will be exercised, not human vengeance. And so he said to him, If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. In other words, if anyone violates God's limits on his judgment of Cain, they would be visited with perfect punishment. That's the idea behind sevenfold. It's not that they're going to be killed seven times or something like that. It's an expression saying perfect justice will be done. Well, Cain begets a line like himself, and it culminates with a man by the name of Lamech, sort of the father of modern culture. He has one son who is presented more or less as the inventor of music, another who who learns how to husband flocks, another who learns how to deal with metal. So we see the birth of human culture taking place there we see something else coming to his fulfillment in Lamech. We hear him saying these words. In fact, this is a song, a sword song. He speaks to his wives. He's also violated God's command concerning marriage. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The spirit of revenge animates sinful human beings. It's there in every sinner we have that inclination to want to take matters into our own hands, to exact revenge, to even the score, and maybe add a little bit to it. On our text this morning, our Lord and teacher gives us a very different way. So Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Let's hear God's word to us this day. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times, seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, children, and all that he had and payment to be made. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! it's clear that uh, forgiveness is the focus of our text but let's uh, let's before we look at that text more directly let's make sure that we don't we don't confuse forgiveness with some wrong ideas of forgiveness we want to make sure that we understand forgiveness in terms that the bible presents forgiveness is not to be confused with the excusing of sin Forgiveness is not saying, eh, it didn't matter. Forgiveness does not deny the reality of sin. In fact, forgiveness, if you stop and think about it, presumes the reality of sin, doesn't it? Because if there's no sin, what's to be forgiven? (laughs) I mean, we don't expect people to plead forgiveness when they make a mistake. You know, if you make a mistake on your math assignment, you know, you don't have to plead forgiveness. That's not a sin. So don't confuse forgiveness with the excusing of sin. If you don't believe there's any sin, then you cannot rightly say there's any such thing as forgiveness. Neither is the granting of forgiveness to be equated with escaping the natural, moral, or legal consequences of sin. Okay, It doesn't short-circuit the judicial process in a legal sense. Scripture tells us that Person could be forgiven of grievous sins, even murder. But Scripture also tells us that unavoidable and sometimes fearful consequences come from sin, even, even for people who have been forgiven. In a very in a very specific sense, you know, a, a thief can be forgiven of his theft, but that thief will be liable for the judicial consequences, restitution or imprisonment or whatever applied. And this leads us to note that the Christian doctrine of forgiveness is completely compatible with the human institutions of judgment that God has ordained in this world to restrain evil and to encourage, promote good. Court officers are to do their best to administer justice. Now that doesn't mean that that the law is to be applied woodenly with no consideration of special circumstances. But it does mean that those court officers' role is not to exact either personal revenge or to exercise personal forgiveness. That is not their role. Their role is to do their best to have the punishment fit the crime. And that leads us to to note that forgiveness is a personal transaction between people, isn't it? It's, it's between the one who has sinned and the one who is extending forgiveness having been sinned against. Of course, we've seen that earlier in chapter 18. Jesus has been showing Peter and the other apostles and us how to deal with that. When someone sins against you, how to, how to work toward forgiveness and reconciliation. But but remember, it's that personal transaction. If someone sinned against you, I have no right to jump in and say, well, I forgive that person. Okay, they they didn't sin against me, so so I have no right to do that. Uh, Confession to a third party does not do anything for reconciliation. Confession to a priest does not bring forgiveness because you haven't confessed to the person whom you sinned against. And neither can a third party impose forgiveness on someone who's been wronged. We want to be really careful here. I I don't want to undermine the Bible's teaching of, of forgiveness, but it is not my place to try to impose forgiveness on someone else. Say, you must forgive this. That's something I may want to try to help them come to, but not impose on them. And this is especially true in cases of sexual or physical abuse. An abused person should not be expected to easily or immediately overcome the effects of the abuse they suffered, effects that probably are still... Imposing suffering upon them. Those who have been abused should be listened to by someone who hears not only their words but their emotions and spiritual pain. They need the love of others and they need people to assure them that God's justice is perfect. He has seen every tear they've shed, He knows their suffering and he will exact full and complete judgment to make that right in the end. His vengeance is perfect. In fact, his punishment will be far more complete than any human revenge might be. With all that to help us focus in, let's think then about forgiveness. Extending forgiveness, especially to one another. Forgiveness is the lifeblood of the church. A church that loses the spirit of forgiveness becomes a corpse. I think it's that important. I think that's why Jesus gives it such importance here. This whole chapter has been leading up to this, hasn't it? This is the culmination of Jesus' teaching on humility. Because for hu- humility is going to be demanded of you, whether you're extending forgiveness or giving forgiveness. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to do that in an attitude of humility, aren't you? And so Jesus began this chapter saying that, that it's only by turning and becoming humble that you can even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, And so this is a natural outworking of that. How do the people of God, in humility, deal with the reality that they're going to sin against one another? That we're going to violate God's word and bring suffering even into others' lives? Well, let's look then at our text and see how Jesus unfolds this for us. This section, this last section of chapter 18, begins, you may have noticed already, exactly the way the first section did, with Peter coming to ask Jesus a question. And Jesus making the most of that question. So we're sort of getting a sense of the, the topic being tied up here. Peter comes to him, and as we read earlier, Lord, this respectful address to Jesus. How often, literally, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now let's give, before we pick on Peter, let's give him some credit. Okay, he has understood that forgiveness is important to Jesus. He may even be remembering Jesus teaching them that prayer that we just recited a few minutes ago teaching that back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we, have, as we also have forgot, forgiven our debtors. And he, you may recall that Jesus appended a footnote to that prayer. He made a comment on one particular aspect of that prayer, and it's this phrase that he commented on. For, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Augustine, the great theologian of Africa, noted in a sermon that we cannot truthfully pray that prayer unless we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. So Peter's understood that Jesus is making a big deal about forgiveness. He well, I don't know if he's trying to impress Jesus or not, but at any rate, he comes to Jesus with this question, proposes his own answer to it. I think seven would be good. Maybe he's heard Jesus using the number seven. Maybe he's, he's caught on that seven is a significant word in the scripture, it signifies completeness. And so he, he's thinking to himself, well, if I, if I forgive if I forgive one of these jerk disciples seven times, that should be fine. (laughs) How shocked he must have been to hear Jesus reply. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. What's Jesus doing with this comment? He's shifting the entire paradigm, if that's the right word, uh, of, of Peter here. Because think about what is in Peter's mind as he brings this question. He, he's, he, he's not focusing, as Jesus was in his teaching about forgiveness earlier in the chapter, focusing on the restoration of that lost one. Remember the parable of the lost sheep and shepherd going out and laboriously finding that sheep and bringing it back, and Jesus gives that as a metaphor for someone in the body who sinned, and you're just doing everything you can to bring that person back into the fold. Well, Peter's not really focusing on that, is he? he? He's focusing on himself, right? What do I have to do here? And notice, too, it's, and this has been pointed out by Matthew Henry and, and others, William Hendrickson, he, he's acting as if forgiveness is a commodity, Okay? I've got this amount of forgiveness, and I'm going to dole it out. But, I mean, there's got to be limits on that, right, Jesus? When I run out of forgiveness, well, in his own strength, Peter will certainly run out of forgiveness. And you will certainly run out of forgiveness if you try to do it in your own strength. I mean, a person can only take so much, right? So what is Peter to make? What are we to make of, of this command? I mean, you get the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, don't count. Don't even begin counting. He, he's not saying, go around with a notebook. And, and, and put a mark in every time, you know, you forgive somebody and say, okay, that person I've forgiven 31 times, this one 15, until you get up to 490. And then you can hit them over the head or something. <laughs> That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying forgiveness is not a commodity to be dispensed. Forgiveness is an attitude of heart. It is a disposition of your spirit. It's something that should characterize you, Peter. You should be known as a forgiving person. If you're a follower of Christ, calling is the same for you, isn't it? You're called to be a forgiving person. But I don't have to tell you how hard that is at times, do I? It's hard to be a forgiving person. In fact, Humanly saying, we'd, humanly thinking, we'd say it's impossible. And Jesus knows that. And so he wants to give Peter and you today, he wants to give you the key to being a forgiving person. He wants to give you the motivation, the power, the strength. It will take strength. It will take power for you to be a forgiving person. He wants, he wants to give you this key. And being the master teacher that he is, he does it with a story. Because it'll be easier for Paul, Peter to remember, easier for you to remember a story. And just a lecture, and so he tells us this amazing story recorded only in the in the Gospel of Matthew about uh, a king. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. He's, he he does that a lot. You've noticed, I'm sure. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. I'm not saying it's identical. There's not there's not inequality here, but he's he's using this story to point to something about what it is to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. So he, he gives us the story of a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants, and, and this one servant is brought before him, and it was 10,000 talents. Now, talent is the largest measure of uh, weight of gold or silver or bronze, whatever you're using. It's like the biggest measure. So he owes 10,000 of the biggest measure. And 10,000, this word can actually be translated myriads. Okay, it's the biggest counting number you got in Greek, okay? So, probably we should say something like, he owes the king a gazillion dollars. Okay, just whatever number you can come up with that's beyond anything else. And of course he can't pay it. And so in keeping with the times, his master orders him to be sold, he's going to become an indentured servant and he's going to spend the rest of his life working off that debt and of course he'll never work it off. And in fact his wife and children will be sold as indentured servants and everything he has will be liquidated just consequence, right? But the servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. Literally the word there is is delay your anger. Hold off on your anger. And I will pay you everything. Now of course we know that that's not true. He'll never be able to pay that. We sort of wonder at that point is this guy a fool or does he think the king is a fool? You know what? He, he, has, he has no ground to stand upon here. He has no basis upon which to ask to get away from this consequence. But he's desperate, and so we'll say anything. In verse 27, here's the pivot point for this first act of the play, right? My translation says, out of pity for him, I, I like the word compassion there better. You may remember from looking at this word earlier in Matthew, this is a word that says his gut was moved. He felt it deep within himself. This is the same word that's used back in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion for them. His gut was moved. His heart went out to them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we saw Jesus having compassion upon the crowds and healing them and feeding them, having compassion on the blind in chapter 20 of Matthew. He was a compassionate Lord. And we're called to be compassionate, aren't we? Colossians 3, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. The king has compassion on the servant, on the servant and he released him, he set him free. He forgave him the debt. In an instant, he owes nothing. (laughs) He doesn't say, well, work five years and we'll call it even. He just unilaterally forgives the debt. He walks out of the presence of the king, free man, Not owing a penny. But, verse 28, unfortunately, we read that word, but. The same servant is almost put into, Jesus puts this in almost, you know, you're not going to believe this, okay? The same servant goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii. Uh, uh, denarii. I mean, this is significant. A denarii is what, what, what a guy down at the bottom, a laboring guy would make for a day's wage. It's a significant amount, but it's nothing compared to the 10,000 talents. He seizes the guy, begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe what a contrast with the behavior of his, of his king, isn't it? And the fellow servant fell down. Notice that? Did, do you catch the echo here? He fell down. Remember the guy grabbing him by the throat fell down before the king? This guy falls down. And his words are almost identical to the, of the servants to the king. Have patience with me. Delay your anger with me, and I will pay you. And unlike the servant in relationship to the king, it's actually conceivable the guy might have been able to do that. It might have taken him a long time, or maybe he could have got some help from his friends or whatever. He could. But that won't suffice. Verse 30, refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. End of Act 2. Now Act 3. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They saw the disconnect, and they tell the master, and so accounts are called in. Verse 32. You wicked servant, you evil servant, all the debt, in the original language that comes first in the sentence, all the debt that you owed, I forgave you, because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy... wasn't it necessary he's not saying it just been it'd been nice if you did it wasn't it necessary wasn't there a moral obligation on you because of what i did for you wasn't there a moral obligation on you to forgive your fellow servant should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debts. Of course, that will be never. And unlike the majority of his parables, Jesus actually goes so far as to give, give the lesson. Oftentimes, he'll tell a parable, And we're expected to discern the lesson, but he he tells it right out here, doesn't he? The last verse in our text. So also, my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's the key... To being a forgiving person. I'm sure you must have caught it here. Because we're that first servant, aren't we? We're the one who owes our king a gazillion dollars. We're the one whose sins are an insurmountable debt to God. And even if we were to, from this instance, live for eternity and never sin again, always be righteous, nothing we could do would do anything to obviate that debt that we already owe. This is us, isn't it? This is you. You're the one who has called down the wrath of God upon yourself by your sins you have an insurmountable debt before God. And if you've come to him in repentance and faith, and pleaded the blood of Christ that we sang about earlier, he has wiped your slate clean. He has forgiven your sins Completely. You are free. You owe God nothing. Because Jesus paid it all. That's what makes a forgiving person, isn't it? when you realize the depth of God's love for you, when you realize that he has forgiven your sin. And like Paul, you say, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I'm the worst one I know. And he came to save sinners like me. When you begin to grasp that, Ah, when you get, begin to receive that forgiveness, that's the forgiveness you extend to other people, isn't it? You don't have to come up with the forgiveness. Christ has already given it to you, <laughs> He has forgiven you so completely. So freely, so abundantly, that you have a wealth of forgiveness to share with others. That's where it comes from. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. This calls for you to take your sin seriously, doesn't it? It's so easy for us to reverse this parable in our own lives. We well, begin to think that people owe us a gazillion dollars. That person that sinned against me, that one that hurt me, that one that went back on his word, that one who who in some way sinned against me, they owe, they owe me a huge mountain. But you know, I'm not such a bad guy before God. You know, I, Sure, I'm not perfect, but you see what we do? We say, we owe oh God the hundred denarii, and other people owe us the gazillion dollars. We get it entirely backwards, don't we? We need to go to the cross. See, there's my sin. There's my debt. My sin put the nails through his hands and his feet. It was for my sin that the spear was plunged into his side and the blood and water flowed out. It was for my sin that God himself took on human form and suffered and died. He paid that much because my sin was so much. And as we appreciate what God has done for us and it becomes a joy a joy to forgive others. We forgive as we have been forgiven and we and do you see that when you do that, when you extend the forgiveness that Christ has given to you to someone else, you get to participate in his extending forgiveness to that person. Hey, you don't save them. I mean, your forgiveness doesn't really wipe away their debt. But in a sense, you're sharing in what Christ is doing. Extending forgiveness to people. And what can be better than that? <laughs> What can be a more joyful calling than to seek that reconciliation with one another that Jesus has been talking about earlier in Matthew? And he's given you the tool to do it here. He's reminded you of the tremendous forgiveness of God for you. And he's given you this huge reservoir, this never-ending reservoir of forgiveness that you can use to, to pour into others' lives. Forgiveness is the lifeblood Of the church and as long as that life blood is pumping strongly the church is healthy. Let's pray together. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father we are in awe before the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. You've had mercy on us and shown us our sin. We've opened our eyes to see what rebels we are, how self-centered we are, how self-consumed we are, and yet you've extended to us your love, your completely giving, self-giving love. Oh, Lord, help us to experience your forgiveness more deeply, more fully, so that we can extend that forgiveness to others and thereby, thereby bring glory to you, and build up your church. And help us, Lord, to be be those who trumpet this forgiveness to the world around us, a world filled with people, consumed with trying to even the score, their relationships broken and shattered. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in proclaiming the good news that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.